This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Buy the book on BFM 89.9. When you are old and grey and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once. And of their shadows deep. How many loved your moments of glad grace and loved your beauty with love false or true. But one man loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face. And bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly. How love fled and paced upon the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. Hello, everyone. You're listening to By the Book. I'm Sharmila Ganesan. And with me, as always, my fellow poetry lover, Lee Chuilin. Hello. It is our monthly bibliography episode and uh, it's been a while, but we are featuring a poet this month. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about William Butler Yeats, uh, whose birthday was on the 13th of June, 1865. So we thought, what better time than this month to talk about him? Yes. So I actually don't really know where to start. I- I'm feeling frankly, a little bit intimidated. And I think that has to do with William Butler Yeats's stature when it comes to the literary world. It's always been said that he is from the lineage or heavily inspired by, um, you know, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, Edmund Spencer. And if you consider that sort of, that sort of lineage, you can easily carry that on through after his death to the gajillions, a scientific word, of writers and poets that he's continued to inspire, whether it's through direct allusions to his poems, phrases that uh, he used, or just his style. So there's just so much to say. No, there is so much to say. I mean... The simplest place to start is he is he was and still is considered to be one of the most significant poets and figures of 20th century literature. Um, and I think it is important to talk about, as you as you alluded to, how much his poetry still plays a part in today's uh, literature, today's inspirations and so on. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1923. So yes, huge, huge figure. Um, also a very interesting one. And and I think perhaps, as we do with these shows, the easiest place to start would be the beginning. Not um, the occult? Well, <laughs> we save the drama for later, like most poetry. Let's do the Pambayang part first. So he was famously actually an Irish poet, something that he very proudly wore. He was born on the 13th of June, 1865 in Sandy Mount in uh, County Dublin, Ireland. Um, however, he did spend, I think, equal amounts of his time in London as well as in Ireland, even though I think he very much preferred to identify himself as being Irish. He was part of the Anglo-Irish community and 
this becomes important later on because it informs how he saw himself in relation to his country. Um, and his father, uh, John Butler Yeats, uh, was um, quite an interesting person, soldier, uh, linen merchant. He was also a painter. And that's where we started. They basically a, a pretty privileged life because the Anglo-Irish were considered to be the the smaller yet the economically self-sufficient and, and really the, the ones who controlled Ireland's economy at that time. Well, can I just say that unusually for one of these shows, we can actually say that this is a writer who had a very artistic background because yes. more often than not, um, whenever we've, we've done these things, either it has been someone who was more or less raised to be a lord or a lawyer of some kind or, um, you know, had a working class background and therefore did not always have the kind of exposure to arts and crafts and culture. Um, but actually, the Yates family was highly artistic across the board. Um, his brother became a painter. His sisters were involved in the arts and crafts movement. Um, he himself had a had a very, very well-rounded education. And so um, all in all, he was kind of always set on this path towards becoming a, a writer, although his poetry is often... S- uh, his poetry, because he wrote for a long time, you could see it actually develop, right? Because when I say that he was on the path towards becoming a writer, I I don't want to fool you into thinking that Yeats at 60 was Yeats at 16, because the the poetry was vastly different. The other thing that I just wanted to say up front before we get into the nitty gritty, and there is a lot of nitty gritty, is that as always, I find it really helpful to think about the overall period in which a person lived. So he was born in 1865, he passed away in 1939. And in that time, that encompassed the First World War. More on that later, because I think a lot of the poems kind of speak to that or echo that. Um, but it also encompassed the Protestant, Catholic, Irish turmoil that existed in that time and the shifts of power that happened over that period. And he passed away, of course, right before the Second World War. And so I think those things are important as bookmarks for somebody who wrote the second coming. You know, it's just important to know. Um, I think alongside that, that phase also marks we call it globalization, but I think it's more fair to say um, the era of colonization and sort of this kind of great transfer of knowledge and beliefs and practices and stories from primarily the East to the West. And and you mentioned occultism earlier. Um, Yeats was famously interested in all sorts of religious slash uh, supernatural practices from everywhere, from India, from other parts of the world as well. I did want to say um, on that note of not necessarily always the same kind of right. He was never really a good student. In fact, he was um, pretty much known to be only good at Latin. Uh, Very poor in spelling, apparently, which I thought was quite funny. Struggled with maths and languages. Um, So an interesting person. And I think it was really only um, in his late teen years that he started finding the thing that would become his lifelong pursuit and love, which is poetry. Um, So he first started writing when he was 17. At that point, one of his main influences was Shelley. Um, And then went on to talk about lots of things that involved mythology and legends and uh, folk tales from other parts of the world as well as Europe. And that kind of, I think, set the tone for the kind of writer that he would become later. So I want to use the word epic. But when you use that word in the context of poetry, it always denotes Uh, long poems. This idea of an 
epic poem, right? That tells a legendary tale. Uh, but the reason why I was thinking of that word is because of his interest in mysticism, mythology and legend and the ways in which that ended up um, manifesting in his poems, which are not epic in length. It, he wrote one long poem, like ever, that wasn't received all that well and then he never did it again by all accounts. And so if you did want to swat um, on your Yeats, it's actually kind of easy to do in the sense that the poems themselves are short, nutritious and dense. Yes, that's, that's often how it feels. five, six lines. Exactly. Um, but the the starting point, the basis more often than not, or for a fair amount of his poems, even when they are not ostensibly about mythology, is to draw comparisons to the Roman Empire, is to draw comparisons to things that happened in, in India, um, Indian legends, Indian folklore. And so he, he really was all over the place. And I think that that is part and parcel of that spirituality that we were talking about. Because before we get to the poems, we, we've been using a lot of words circling this idea of mythology and folklore. And that is a huge part of it. But the occultism was lifelong and wide-ranging. And he actually was very deeply embedded in that world because it wasn't just something that he read about. It was something that he actively recruited for. He moved in those circles and that also informs the work. So 1885, many um, you know people who study Yeats often view it as a sort of turning point. Um, he's just about 20, so I think that's significant. Um, sort of that threshold between teenage, teenagehood and adulthood. 1885 is when he first published his poetry. Um, it was published in the Dublin University Review. And it also sort of marks the time when his interest in occultism took a very serious turn, started speaking about it as well as doing lots of research and really linking up with others in the occult community to to kind of, I presume, discuss and research these things. Interestingly, it was also the same year that he met John O'Leary, who was a patriot, um, an exile from Ireland for nationalistic activities. He had faced imprisonment and so on. And so O'Leary and occultism are almost the two twin influences of the kind of works that we see him do, because it's it's often documented that O'Leary was responsible for cultivating in Yeats the need to assert his identity as an Irishman, the need to refer back to Irish mythology and Irish folktales and Celtic lore in his poetry. And that also is something that we continue to see a lot of, even though his writing, I think you can quite clearly see the early works, which are concerned with, as you said, mythology, folklore and all that. And then later on, they kind of become more contemporary, more political and more overtly realist as well. More direct, Mm. I think it's important to say, because the earlier works feel more elusive, um, more often than not, more formal throughout his life, really, even as his language use deepened, even as he uh, explored different themes, he was quite a formalist, right? And in many ways, he he didn't exactly go into freeform, you know, <laughs> spoken word style poetry. He, he was, um, you know, sort of a more classic poet in that sense. But I very much wanted to talk about the nationalist part of uh, Yeats, mostly because, like you said, it informs his work, but also because it is an important perspective to know that that's where he was coming from. It actually comes through, even if you didn't know he was Irish, you read a couple of poems and you know, because it, it comes through loud and clear there. Later in life, he became a senator. Um, so this strain of politics is something that is a threat that carries through his entire life. And I think also importantly, gives his work a sense of place and identity. 
We're talking about William Butler Yeats, um, of course, Nobel Prize winner for literature. His birthday was on the 13th of June, 1865. So we're dedicating our bibliography episode this month to him. Let us know, are you a fan of Yeats's works? Uh, do you have a favourite poem you'd like to tell us? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. Best Flipping Moments, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. My country is Kiltartan Cross. My countrymen, Kiltartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Nor law, nor duty bade me fight, nor public men, nor cheering crowds, a lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind, the years to come seemed waste of breath, a waste of breath, the years behind, in balance with this life, this death. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. It's our monthly bibliography episode. And we're spending today's show talking about poet William Butler Yeats. Uh, so we've touched on a lot of his early life, um, his beliefs and his influences and so on. Uh, I do want to get into the juicy stuff, of which there's a lot. But before we do, I thought it would be nice to kind of set the stage a little bit. And I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you if you have a favorite of his works. The first uh, of his works that I'm familiar with is The Second Coming. Uh, it, it was something that I knew from when I was a young, apocalyptically inclined child. Um, and then subsequently, um, a poem that I studied in university. And it is one that has occurred over and over again. So for no other reason than um, it is probably one of the few Yeats poems that I could come close to reciting from memory, I would go with that. But it's difficult because he is... Oddly, for somebody who we're clearly struggling to talk about, there's so much to, to cover. Um, he's actually a very accessible poet. No, and I love that about him. And and actually the poem that, that's my favourite, even though it's actually one of many, displays exactly that kind of accessibility. And it's He Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven, which is just beautiful in its imagery, but also so accessible. And romantic. And romantic. And so um, I just think that that's a nice way of talking about the kind of writer Yeats was, uh, which is to say that despite being influenced or, or coming from the lineage of people like Shelley or Byron um, or Auden later on, his writing actually is a lot more modern. And and I, I say modern, understanding that we are looking at it from a modern lens, right? And what I mean by that is that a modern audience can pick it up and not have to struggle with words or meter or particular metaphors that they may not get. Now to go back to his personal life, because actually the poem I referenced was written for a particular person, um, a woman that would end up occupying about 30 years of his life at least, Maud gone. And um, that really, I think, takes us on the entry point into his personal life. Yes. Uh, so she was his muse. Um, she was somebody that he regarded as the the great 
pursuit, I think, in many ways of this period of his life. He proposed to her a grand total of, I think, four times. Um, <laughs> At least. Yes. And he was turned down each time for a variety of reasons. Uh, although at one point, they, after many years of friendship and letters and a failed marriage on her part, there was a consummation, that is how it's often described, um, which they both seem to regard as somewhat disappointing. And then they kind of went back to business as usual, which is to say not really keeping in touch. I don't know. It's it's kind mm. of a very complex relationship. She was also married to his um, friend slash rival, John McBride. And then after McBride passed away, I laugh. I, I'm not actually laughing at them. But after McBride passed away, um, Yates actually proposed to her again and she turned him down yet again. So Yates remarked that after they finally, you know, did the deed, so to speak, he said the tragedy of sexual intercourse is the perpetual virginity of the soul. And I think that <laughs> I think that phrases like this, uh, as well as the the poems that he in fact wrote for her, kind of speak to the the longing that existed, uh, but also the kind of inherent disappointment with reality that seemed to permeate this relationship. Maud Gon apparently used to send him examples of artists and um, poetry and writing that extolled the virtues of artists not consummating um, relationships. Yes. Which I just thought, goodness, what is this? What is this relationship? But we're talking about her because up until he got married, um, which was in his 50s, later in life, because he really suddenly got it in his head that he wanted to have um, that he wanted to have a legacy in the form of a child. And, you know, therefore, he wanted to get married. Prior to that, she was the relationship really that was the primary motivator or the primary romantic relationship, even if it was unrequited. Yes. And then his actual wife, whom, um, as you said, um, was when he was 51, was much, much younger than him. And I think w when he expressed desires to marry, to want to marry her, people on both sides, her family and friends, his friends, both thought it wasn't a good idea, didn't think it was going to work. But despite all of that, it actually um, ended up, um, so he married Georgie Hyde Lees, and uh, they ended up having a, a, what sounds like, by all accounts, a pretty good marriage. A pretty good marriage, and one in which they also... Um worked together in contacting spirits and guides <laughs> and um, in which they experimented with things like automatic writing. Um, so like I said, um, like you said, rather, a good marriage. And like I said earlier, this guy did this thing through his whole life. Yes. I think it's worth talking about the people that he's been linked up to, right? Because besides um, Auden, who actually was uh, not just an inspiration, but uh, a friend, uh, he also did a lot of work with the Abbey Theatre, for instance. So he did actually write plays. He was very passionate about creating um, an Irish playwright movement. Um, and then later on, he actually developed a great interest in Ezra Pound. And in fact, traveled to America exclusively because he wanted to meet Ezra Pound. He thought Ezra Pound was the only poet worthy of looking up to, of studying. And they became friends. They would um, holiday together and so on, which I thought was quite cute. Yes, which is also why at one point he expressed 
admiration for Benito Mussolini. Uh, Just to yes. say, I, I I refuse to let a mention of Ezra Pound come up in conversation without bringing up Mussolini, unfortunately. But yeah, um, I, I think that that tie-up is a good way to come back to talking about the writing because we mentioned earlier on that critics have always said that there are three clear phases um, in Yeats's writing. So you have the early stuff, which was heavily influenced by the um, Raphaelite kind of movement, pre-Raphaelite movement, which was heavily romantic and, you know, did a lot of the the kind of very self-conscious, very stylized work that you would associate with those poets. And then you have the middle bit, which grew in terms of political um, political strength, in directness, in a muscularity of language, in, um, in a growing sense of Irish nationalism. And then you've got the third period in which he was more personal. Um, I think as as often happens with older writers, more personal, more reflective, more contemplative of his life. And so that's kind of where it sits. And it is in the latter part where his work was also being seen as increasingly modernist that he was hanging out chilling with Ezra Pound. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, I, I like that you said it got more personal because to me, personal doesn't necessarily mean that it shifts away from that one strain of the Irishness, right? Because even when it was personal, he would talk about places in Ireland that he grew up in. Um, he would refer to wanting to retire in a particular place in Ireland or a particular town or a particular countryside area. Um, and I, I find that someone who had held on to that particular sense of identity throughout his life, perhaps coming from a country like Malaysia, which again feels like one of those nations that end up getting overlooked in the grand narrative of history. I find that something of a, of a I think something that I think of a lot with, with a writer like Yeats, uh, the fact that he held it so dear and so strong. So dear, so strong, with such an abiding insistence in many ways of looking at things through an Irish lens, whether it was writing about death or war, or for that matter, idealizing Ireland. Um, you know, because a big part of his works that we haven't actually talked about is this love of nature, which stemmed from his desire to sort of um, go back to living a, a simpler life, to mm. to move away from cities, to move in, to move to nature. Um, maybe not so much in an Emerson way, but nonetheless, right? There is this desire, and a lot of that is expressed through beautiful poems about Ireland. I'm thinking of Innisfree, you know, just things like that, that kind of exemplify and extol the beauty of Ireland. Just to close off, um, there's so much that we didn't get to, but I think that is the pitfalls of attempting a writer, poet like Yeats. Um, but he passed away on 28th of January, 1939, at the age of 73, and of course has since gone on to be celebrated and read ever since. And I think that's what we're going to be touching on in footnotes. But let us know, are you a fan of William Butler Yeats? We've been dedicating our bibliography episode to him. Uh, tell us your favourite poems by him. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. <laughs> That brings 
access to footnotes and usually we do adaptations on this side of things. But with Yates, it's a little bit more complicated because there aren't necessarily direct adaptations as such. However, he pops up in so many different things. And I have a theory. I think it's got to do with a couple of things. One, something we already said, the accessibility. And I think the perennial, uh, perennial, what's the word? It, the words feel fresh no matter when you look at them. But the other is the power of short sentences, because you see particular lines from his poems popping up as titles and quotations all over the place. All over the place, um, in song, even in some cranberry songs, and, you know, <laughs> in a variety of, of spots. And I, I think um, it's odd, isn't it? Because when we think of Instagram poetry, which is, you know, I, I mean, a topic for another show, it tends to come from a quotability-ness, I suppose, um, which I couldn't really argue that Yeats has because more often than not, people quoting him are taking it out of context. Yes. Um, or for that matter, it's become referential in a way that no longer means anything. Um, I'm thinking of something like No Country for Old Men, which if you say that phrase, I think... Um, if you're a Cormac McCarthy reader, then that's who you'll be thinking of. But if not, you'll be thinking of Javier Bardem. And, you know, um, I'm not sure how many people would refer that all the way back to the poem. Yes. Whereas the actual poem is called Sailing to Byzantium. And it's really about, well, it is about aging, um, but it's, it's more of a thematic mood piece than it is anything that's specifically about one line. It is the opening line to the poem, though. Uh, the Centre Will Not Hold, for instance, is used as a title for Joan Didion's documentary. Uh, she also used yeah. yeah, so she used slouching towards Bethlehem for her book. Um, so again, they're all sort of devoid of context or the original context. But I feel like it's also one of those things that I can easily imagine doing because I often have lines that pop up in my head from a Yeats poem and not necessarily the entire poem. Even something like Leda and the Swan, I know the story, but then it also kind of has each line also holds a certain resonance that may not necessarily have anything to do with the rest of the word. Your name, Leda, is very provocative. <laughs> You're thinking about the Yeats. I bet you know it by heart. In Italian. Uh, tutto di colpo. La grande ave. Palpitante. Sulla ragazza. Yeah, so when I was thinking about Leda and the Swan, the reference that came to me was The Lost Daughter because yeah. that was uh, a movie that came out just last year in which that poem and its various translations actually feature very heavily. Um, and I think that part of it is also down to the fact that um, whether it's Leda and the Swan or uh, The Second Coming or The Lake Isle of Innisfree or for that matter, Death, um, a lot of these poems, I think, because he was a symbolic poet, they're very cinematic in nature. Yes. When you read the, when you read the line, when you hear it spoken aloud, it conjures up images, which is exactly what it should do, right? Like for somebody who is a master of using symbols and, illus and illusions in order to achieve meaning, of course, these are incredibly evocative lines. The blood dim tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. I mean, that is, yeah. that's a line. And I think that um, that's why 
why he has become so quotable and is so often used in movies and in other books as well. Because even one line or a phrase um, is evocative enough to serve as a as a stand-in or, or to evoke an emotion that whoever is using it may want. I'm so glad you brought up movies because I was going, I was waiting to be able to bring this up. Um, one of my favourite uses of his poems in a movie, um, again, as you said, not necessarily related to the original context, is in AI. Uh, Robin Williams actually plays, if I'm not mistaken, the, the the computer. And he recites the poem to Haley Joel Osment, right? And it's the, so the lines he recites is, come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy, hand in hand, for the world more full of weeping than you can understand. And I get chills every time I hear it. But I also get chills when I hear the when I read the original poem, which is The Stolen Child. And I think there's something quite beautiful about being able to write these lines that can live on in so many ways and that people can sort of interpret in so many ways as well. Yes, I was thinking actually about um, one of the lines from Easter 1916, which gets quoted a lot, uh, a terrible beauty is born. And how, again, um, and this was something we brought up in the main body of the show, if you think about the context of 1916, um, and actually what Easter 1916 is referencing, it's not necessarily something that you can use across the board. It's not necessarily something that you would think you could refer to in, in any other instance. And yet it it's quoted all the time. It's quoted in speeches. Um, it shows up in movies. So yeah, I, I actually think that an adaptation of Yeats's life would be plenty interesting. I'm not sure why it hasn't been done, but um, it's actually something that I would love to see. I mean, even just the relationship, the, the Maud gone and his relationship would make such great viewing, I think. Um, I just wanted to close with a recommendation uh, from a very old movie. I'm not recommending the entire movie, but even just on YouTube, Anthony Hopkins reading He Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven, uh, which is from 84 Charing Cross Road. Um, old, old movie, but oh, one of my favorite scenes of Yates being read on screen. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths, Enwrought with golden and silver light The blue and the dim and the dark cloths Of night and light and the half-light I would spread the cloths under your feet But I, being poor, have only my dreams I have spread my dreams under your feet Tread softly because you tread on my dreams let us know. Um, are you a fan of William Butler Yeats? Uh, do you have a favourite poem? Do you have a favourite line even that's been quoted elsewhere? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.